Hi there, I'm Seb from To The Trains and welcome back to the Railway Rover podcast. Today we're going to be exploring a little further afield, so I'm joined by Ambrose, who's from Belgium, to discuss the difference between the UK and EU in terms of the railways. So thank you very much for joining us, Ambrose. How are you doing today? Uh, Very well. That's good to hear. Thank you again for, for coming on. I think the big question, though, is... What would you say is probably the main difference between the UK's railways and what you've got in Europe? Because obviously it varies between countries to countries. So maybe you can speak about Belgium and France. And what have your experiences like? In my opinion, there are three main structures in Europe, in mainland Europe, for organising the railways. And it's very different to what you see in the UK. So in the UK, it's based on a private model. It used to be franchising, now it's different. And in Europe, it's generally one state-owned operator, and there are three general structures, I'd say. So the first one is in Germany, which is called Deutsche Bahn. So basically, it's split into two companies, which one of these, one of the companies is the equivalent of network rail, so it manages track station signals and other stuff. And then there is the passenger part which manage well passenger and freight company which manages all high speed local regional trains as well as some freight trains in france it's slightly different so you have uh, what we call the sncf group so sncf is basically a french acronym for french national railway operator and so you have sncf réseau and sncf voyage so SNCF Réseau is basically the equivalent of Network Rail again. And then you okay. have SNCF Voyage. So SNCF Voyage, again, can be split into two other parts. So for the Paris region, so Ile-de-France, and then the rest of the country. So basically in Paris, you have the suburban trains called Transilien and the RER, Réseau Express Régional, Regional Express Network. So I don't know if you've heard a bit about the RER. Do you know what it is or do I have to explain? A bit, but how about you explain it just for those in the audience who maybe don't know. Okay, so the RER is kind of like a suburban train when it's outside of the city centre, but then instead of terminating at a major station in the city centre, it continues down in tunnels and acts like an express metro line, generally to shorten travel times within the city centre because the Paris metro has a very high stopping density. So some right, yeah. some some stops are just maybe 300 metres apart. So sometimes for long distances, it can get really, really long. So the RER is there for this. And the Transilien is, well, a classic suburban train. It terminates at major stations in the city centre. Then when you're in the rest of the country, in the rest of France, you have different type of services. So, of course, the TGV, Train à Grande Vitesse, which is split into two, so Ouigo and Inouï. So, basically, Inouï is the normal brand and Ouigo is the low-cost brand, which SNCF uses for its high-speed services. And then you've got TER services, Train Express Régional. So, these are basically all the regional lines in France. 
but they're slightly differently managed than in other European countries in that SNCF operates them, but the rolling stock and the tracks and signals are owned by the regions of France. So, for example, you have TER Nouvelle-Aquitaine and, you know, these kind of things. And the Intercité are managed solely by SNCF. And then my other model is how it's, how trains are operated in Belgium by SNCB, which is again the French acronym for National Railway Operator for Belgium, which is split again. There is the network management part and the passenger part. And the passenger part is slightly different because unlike in Germany and France where the regions kind of, kind of own the rolling stock and these kind of things, in Belgium, everything is owned by the government. This is due to the fact that Belgium okay. is a very small country. So services are split by L trains, L standing for local. So these are all the regional trains. P trains, P standing for peak. So these are special peak only long distance trains. Then you have S trains, the suburban trains in all major cities. So Antwerp, Brussels, Liège. And then you have IC trains, IC standing for intercity. These are the longer distance services which generally only operate within Belgium, but some of them continue in France, but not much. Then, of course, it varies from countries to countries, but generally it's similar. To the, there are three type of networks, which are by the likes of France, Germany, and Belgium. Right, yeah. That was actually a really, really interesting overview, actually. I think it's very comprehensive. I like, actually, how you mentioned with RER and how it goes sort of an express, as you say, express metro service. I think that's quite clever, actually, as another opportunity or as another route to get passengers around quickly without them having to maybe switch to a dense or urban metro system. Well, you could also compare the RER to Crossrail or Thameslink, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think that's actually a good comparison to make. We'll be able to see just how similar it is to Crossrail when it releases, hopefully, in the summer next year. We'll, We'll see. We're, I'm not too confident in them. Thameslink, yeah, I, I would say that Thameslink, yeah, I think that's actually a good comparison and one we can see in operation right now as it goes through the city of London, but it goes all the way north to Peterborough, I think, and as far south as Brighton. So that was actually a good point you bring up. And I think another thing that I that was particularly interested in is, especially in France, with the budget sort of train service. So how does the budget train service in France compare to the obviously fully fledged services? So I've never tested it out personally, but it's kind of similar to how Ryanair flies its planes. So you have essentially they use the same rolling stock, but there is no first class and seating is very dense and not that comfortable from what I've heard, but it's really much cheaper. Sometimes it can be as much as three times cheaper if you buy uh, your ticket a lot in advance. Right, yeah, I think that's I think that's quite a good idea, and I like how you compare that to Ryan there as well. Well, we've got Lumo coming out in the UK, formerly known as East Coast Trains, running budget services from London to Edinburgh. So we'll see how that goes and just how that sort of compares to France's budget services and see if it's actually worth it or if... It's worth the upgrade to a LNER service, for example. Also, talking about how France launched a, uh, its own low-cost high-speed train operator, due to the fact that 
the European Union wants a European members to open up their railways, SNCF mm-hmm. decided to launch it another low-cost high-speed train brand, but this time in Spain. And so basically what they did is take part of the the existing fleet which was operated in France and they modified it to be operated in Spain only, changed the seating, and I actually heard pretty positive reviews about it. Yeah, that's, that's quite good actually, and I didn't know about that. So I've just learned something new. I suppose another difference with the UK also is that there isn't as much as a focus as mainland Europe on high-speed rail. And that's for a variety of reasons. But obviously we've got HS2 and HS1, but there's less of these high-speed route and links that are above 125 miles an hour. Well, what you say is true, but also something we don't have that much I think in mainland Europe is, you know, sort of classic intercity trains, but running at 125 miles per hour. It's generally we only have like 100 miles per hour train and, you know, 200 miles per hour high speed train, but we don't have something in the middle to fill this gap. So, Well, that's actually quite interesting because I personally, I haven't done much research but I wasn't actually expecting that. But that's quite interesting how there's a big contrast between your standard 100 mile an hour stock and then you've got your intercity international lines. Now, thinking back to the international lines again, uh, you've got third party private operators, I presume, or I might be wrong, but like Talis or Thalis or however you want to pronounce it, that run between countries. So we pronounce it Thalis in French, but... In English, it's Thales, so you pronounce it right. Uh, so Thales is actually a, a bit of a special case because if you know a bit of, uh, about how Eurostar works, Thales is basic, is basically the same as Eurostar. So it's primarily owned by SNCF and then it has a few private owners and other public state owned companies who own it. So it's not actually private, but it's close to a private operator, private third-party operator. We do have uh, a few private third-party operators, though, in in France, not really, because it's really trying to keep, you know, its railways very close. France likes going international, but they don't like international third-party companies coming into into France, which I think is a bit of a shame, because it does limit, you know, your variety and your choice because that means ticket prices will rise a lot sometimes. Yeah, it's quite interesting actually as well how like again having these third party maybe not necessarily private but close to it uh, that also that creates a bit of competition and again you might see more routes or at least more services. Now on to something slightly different. I think us British, we're very quick to complain about our our own railway and the infrastructure and all the delays, the engineering work, etc., etc. How do you think that in terms of performance, in terms of delays, general quality of railways, how do you think that compares between the UK and continental Europe? Well, one thing I'd like to make clear is that in Europe, we tend to complain a lot about our railways too. Like French people... I wouldn't say they hate SNCF, but they don't like it because 
They have right. a very bad reputation in France too. Same in Belgium with the National Railway Operator. In Germany, it's actually quite good. I don't know how German people would rate it, but I don't complain about it personally. But I think the UK isn't necessarily worse than countries in, in mainland Europe. Again, it depends. I think where, where I live in Belgium, it's actually not that bad. Now, recently there have been a lot of engineering works, flooding. So it's been quite bad in terms of reliability because I commute on trains regularly two times a week. So when there are delays, it's, it's quite annoying because I'm in a boarding school. So when I come back home, okay. I don't like being in a train that's delayed or, you know, not having my train because it's cancelled. Yesterday, I actually, it took me one hour more than usual to come home because there had been a, a landslide. But generally speaking, it's not that bad. It's actually pretty good. So the UK railways isn't worse, but it's, it's not any better. Standard, I'd say. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think that's a good way of putting it. Obviously, when you're living in the country, you're utilizing them. There's there's plenty to complain about. There is no perfect railway system or operation of sorts. There there's always something to complain about, whether it's delays or they've sent a short form train. There's no reservations. There's this. There's that. I think with the Schengen area. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like you know, being able to travel freely between these countries and i think interrailing is just a great possibility i it's something that i really want to try out when like when i'm older travel travel between various european countries with this coordinated interrail system that lets you travel all across europe and i think the schengen area and all the various regulations and freedoms i think that really benefits the railway and it gives us a lot of opportunities. And that's not really something we can see in the UK because obviously we're on an island and then we've got to go through border control. If we want to go on the Eurostar, then you've got all that. You're going into a separate country or area. So I think just having the freedom to be able to move between countries so freely really benefits the railways and the passengers that use them, really. It does in some way because, yes, for example, if you're going, I know, from Brussels to Paris, you can take the Thales, it's direct, you don't have any border controls. But yeah. at the same time, it's not that integrated. It depends from which part of Europe you come. So yeah. let's say if you come from Belgium, it's actually not, it's not that practical because you have to go via Paris almost all the time. And if you go via Paris, you'll probably have to go from, you arrive in Paris Gare du Nord in Paris's North Station and you'll probably have to take the metro or the RER to get into another station and sometimes it can get pretty messy and not that convenient. Firstly, recently I took the train from southwest France all the way back to Brussels and that involved I think three or four changes to make the complete trip. So it wasn't that efficient. But it's true that not having border control is something that does help. It would just be, I I can only imagine just being in Germany, let's just say, and hopping on a train, heading or making connections, obviously, but heading to France pretty much stress-free relative to what we've got in the UK, I would say. Now, what would you say about the rolling stock? 
for maybe France or Belgium or any other country, just Europe in general, relevant to the UK, perhaps? In Western mainland Europe, the rolling stock is actually pretty consistent, apart from Spain and Portugal, which use a larger loading gorge. So otherwise we all use standard gorge. But the difference is that in the UK, we also use standard gorge, but the trains are a little narrower, and in Europe, they're a little wider. Yeah. So in France, we essentially you can essentially divide trains into commuter trains, regional trains, and high-speed trains. Personally, I think intercity trains can be put into regional trains because there aren't that okay. much in France, and they're not on very long distances, in my opinion. So... When in France, we're really for passenger services. We're really getting rid of all the local hold stock, uh, simply because EMUs look more modern and you know more attractive, even though they're more expensive. So there was also recently in France, I can't remember when, a few years ago, SNCF ordered new rolling stock, and it was actually too wide to fit uh, in the stations. So platforms oh, had to be modified. It was quite a big fuss because normally these kinds of mistakes never happen. So right, That's, that is actually I I remember hearing about that. I think another difference actually is: would you say that there's a having double decker trains, trains two floors, etc., whatever you want to call them? Do you think that's beneficial? Do you think it's a bit? It makes it more cramped, or how how do you say that impacts things? Even though you've got more floor space. Like you said earlier, it is more cramped. Personally, I'm not a big fan of double-decker trains. They do look cool, but actually it's pretty cramped in them. So people generally think that you will always have more capacity on double-decker trains. So you have more floor capacity. So on a very long distance and not very frequent railway line, it is true. But if you're on a very busy commuter line, like... Line A of the RER in Paris, which is the busiest rail line in Europe, and it mm-hmm. carries you know more than 1.4 million passengers a day. This line is operated using double-decker trains. The problem, though, is that because you have less doors per floor compared to a single-decker train, well, that means that your dwell time at stations will be longer, and so inevitably you can, your service cannot be as frequent. Uh, and so, actually, it does make your capacity a little smaller on very busy lines. Okay, yeah, I, I see where you're coming from there. I think I'm probably going to wrap up the episode around here. I've learned a lot, quite frankly. I came in, I didn't know that much, to be fair, about the railways in mainland Europe. So thank you, thank you very much for coming on and teaching me so much. And hopefully our audience will be able to take on board what they didn't maybe know Maybe some of them are particularly clued up. Maybe some of them are living in Europe right now, or mainland Europe at least. Maybe some of them are like me and live in the UK and have just haven't done much research. So this was a very interesting episode, actually, to record. And thank you very much for coming on. You're welcome. Thank you also for replying to my email. And <laughs> That's all right. I'm, I, I was pleasantly surprised, I'll tell you that. Are you working on anything, any projects a YouTube channel, well, I know you've got a YouTube channel, but like, is there anything you want to share for the audience who take a look at? And I'll link it to the in the description of the episode. 
for the moment i don't have anything special i'm working on okay i can link your channel in the description and then it'll just be a watch this space go subscribe to ambrose and hopefully there'll be something out sometime so thank you once again to ambrose for coming along hopefully you've learned many many new things about the continental railways mainland europe all of that stuff i've been seth from to the trains and thank you for listening to railway rover